0: You're listening to the Space Commune Podcast. Today we have on David Fishman, uh, the senior manager at the Lantau Group. And David's areas of expertise cover regulatory and commercial intelligence for the Chinese energy sector, including nuclear, solar, wind, and distributed energy markets. Uh, David, welcome to the Space Commune Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. So we're coming fresh off of uh, COP27, right?
0: Yeah, were you, were you watching uh, COP27 at all for your job?
2: Uh, not really. I got to be honest with you. My um, So it's a funny thing. When I went to school, we had um, the, the curriculum that I was in was called ERE, Energy Resources and the Environment. And the joke was always like, oh, which E are you? Are you more focused yeah. on energy or the environment? <laughs> uh and COP27 is COP is like a, a very climate and an environment focused uh event. And my work is really energy-centric. And of course, there's overlap, or else you wouldn't put them together in the same curriculum. But uh, I'm really focused on power and energy markets. And if stuff comes out of COP that affects what I'll do, you know, maybe a certain industry has to have a, a new uh regulation or a new cap on how much it can emit okay that affects my work but otherwise yeah that's that's environment that's climate stuff
1: That's so funny that you say that that those two are like they're they're perceived as sort of polar opposites right because they are inexplicably like you know tied together and one one is related to the other but the the way they're posed uh is as diametrically opposed to each other and in the west i think in particular but i don't know it seems like china might have a different different take on that where they don't say that in uh, energy and environment have to be these things that you have to have one or the other right
2: yeah there's a there's less of an activist angle to how china handles its energy sector and it and balances that with its environmental goals because it's not driven so much by by societal activism, I guess, so to speak, that the China's a planned economy, they say, okay, these are our environmental goals, and these are our energy goals, and they're going to have to work together. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be a case of, you know, saying, how much are we going to push the lever on this one and pull back the the reins on that one? It's just, okay, we're going to hit this at that time, or we're going to hit that at that time. And if that doesn't work together, then we'll adjust you know, the planners have to adjust what they said they were going to do to make sure they can work together. And if they're really out of whack, well, then we screwed up the plan and like let's adjust the plan. It's it's not left up to kind of the the whims of what individual legislators think, acting on, you know, what the mass of the of the constituents say because the people in this district don't want wind power or this people they're really beholden to coal interests or something like that. It's much more pragmatic.
0: Hmm. Yeah, what I've what I've read is that this is my understanding that uh, Chinese attitudes towards nature are a lot more um, anthropocentric, and um, you know they see they they view nature as being something that humans need to subjugate uh, for human purposes. Whereas in the West, I think we have a lot we have uh, a lot more people that are against that um, and more powerful positions. And I mean this is my perception. Let me know if this makes sense to you. But like um for example, ESG investing. Um you know China's open with China's opening up, there's a lot of foreign capital flowing into China. And um and for the listeners,
1: pe- ESG is environmental, social and governance. Governance, right? Yep. Yeah. Um
0: so a lot of money's flowing into China. And with that money there are strings attached where the investors want to see certain benchmarks uh, hit with you know where they're investing and i know in, in china also like they count coal as esg in some in at least in in china uh, they they uh, this is what i've read anyway in bloomberg is that uh, some chinese esg funds include coal and steel um so i'm not sure what you know the definition is definitely different there but it just seems like china's a little bit um you know these attitudes are changing a little bit because of the money the foreign money flowing in
2: Right. Well, so a a couple of things to unpack there. First, I never want to speak on behalf of what Chinese people think or like what the the overall Chinese societal attitude is towards X or Y or Z. But I think if you if you posed a question like or if you put out, you know, philosophical questions like the. the benefit of humanity is more important than the benefit uh, to nature. Agree or disagree? Right. If you posed questions like that on a on a societal basis across different cultures, I think you'd find, on average, maybe the Chinese side would be a little more pragmatic. They're like, "Well, yeah, like take care of people's needs." Whereas I think you'll find a a a substantial uh, cohort in in the united states who would say you know like we are a blight on the on the planet we are a parasite on earth and our our needs have run the earth into the ground and when we have destroyed the earth and we are the problem humans are the disease i you know that's that's a key yeah. trait i think you would see less agreement on average with a with a with a phrasing like that or with an approach like that in China. Uh, that being said, there are environmentalists and there are uh all the way up the leadership, indeed. Yeah. And when you look at like how to merge certain environmental ideologies with certain political ideologies, or when you talk about what does it mean to be, say, an eco-Marxist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that like how do you how do you merge those ideologies? I, I think there's pretty substantial evidence to point to the idea that 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 Xi Jinping is like actually personally invested in in environmental issues, and that he has been for quite a while, well before he was in like the upper echelons of of Chinese political leadership. Uh, If you go back a couple years, and there was somebody did it on Twitter, they did a really great reading of some of these old articles he used to write for the like Zhejiang People's Daily or something anonymously, when he was the provincial vice party secretary. And he wrote these like little daily pieces about uh, just different topics in society. and over the course of two years something like 60 percent of his pieces were about environmental topics like Mm -hmm. it seems like the guy is really personally interested in environmental topics and and you know i'm not particularly deep into political ideologies myself i i I like what works sure Mm -hmm. but that that specific brand of saying like we need to merge what we do with the political ideology with our country but also like personally make sure that it uh, fits in with this environmental people. model yeah with yeah. this environmental model that the guy seems to personally have a have a connection to or believe in yeah, yeah. uh yeah. and then we talk about you know like pragmatically <laughs> pragmatically in reality what do you end up seeing yeah sometimes you do see uh like an esg thematic fund that might have coal generator in there, or it might have a steel company in there, and maybe they were doing something that tricked the investors. I don't know. Maybe they said, we're producing green steel now because we're procuring 100% renewable energy, and that means we have green steel. Uh, That kind of stuff is going on. Uh, If if a steel manufacturer is producing their uh, high energy intensive products with 100% renewable energy, what do we think about that steel now? Is it is it green steel? Is it still so energy intense that it doesn't really matter? I don't know. It's yeah. it's, it's a worthwhile
0: question, though. Yeah, I mean one of the <clears throat> one of the the visuals that I always think about when you know because people people debate on, on in the West about you know China's uh, genuine the genuineness of the uh, you know the ecological civilization stuff and uh the difference between what that means to a western person versus what it means in chinese society i always picture that mountain that's covered in solar panels um i don't know if you've seen that video there's like a you know drone footage or something of oh yeah a mountain that's totally covered in solar panels and on one hand it's like okay well they're decarbonizing maybe that's a very rural area where it's going to be hard for them to stand up a um a coal plant or a nuclear plant um and on the other hand, you think about like in the in the West or in the United States, we say, oh, we need you know, some people will say we need 100 percent renewables. But then when it comes to actually doing that and covering a mountain in solar panels, they would never, ever do that. And here, you know, the answer is then, you know, environmentalists will shut down uh, reliable sources of energy and then never build the renewables to replace it. And it just is, you know, it's degrowth for the West. Um, so what I mean, what do you think about that? Like in terms of especially with in the rural rural areas, um, you know, is there any any pushback or um, you know, any forces at play that are holding back more mountains from being covered in solar panels? Or are people in the rural areas is are are they being done right by those kinds of projects?
2: Great question. Like a lot of interesting inter interacting questions there too. Uh, so first thing about mountains covered in solar panels, there's a reason that they cover the mountains with solar panels. Uh, in, in China, you might know there's no private, uh, land ownership. There's land usage and you can, you use your land at the pleasure of the state. Uh, and you have land usage rights and you can pass those land usage rights on to other people if it's the right type of land and it's the right type of conditions according to the policies. Uh, Land usage is really expensive. And so when it comes to leasing land to build solar panels or wind farms or ultra high voltage lines or whatever it is, it's part of the capital expenditures to, to lease the usage of that land. And it turns out farmland that could have been used for growing crops or uh, you know, forest land or near shore land that was part of a biological microclimate or something, that's all really expensive to use. You know what's really cheap? Barren mountains, because <laughs> you can't do anything with it. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't do anything else with it. They, so these barren mountains uh, and a lot of provincial development docs, they say, you know, uh, land usage fees for this at this level, this at this level, like land usage fees are waived if you're building them on a barren mountain or a desert or something like that, because we weren't doing anything with the land anyway. So that's why you end up seeing mountainsides covered with, with solar panels. Yeah, it's like harder to get up there to build, but you're not actually overlapping with any other use for that land. You can be sure, like maybe it's not so pretty to look at, you liked your I don't know that you're, you're pretty mountain there, but like it wasn't being used for farms. It wasn't being used for anything else. So that's the thing about the, about the the mountains and how they get covered in solar panels, uh, as for rolling out solar in rural areas or wind, but usually solar, solar in the rural areas, uh, there's a, there's, there's the ideal of what you would love to imagine is happening, which is like what high level policies say. And then there's the reality of just like on the ground, there's always loopholes that allow for bad actors at a local level, for corrupt officials, especially low level corrupt officials, or just kind of like people looking to take advantage at a low level, uh, you know, just hucksters, really. And there's always going to be that. It's, it's a huge, huge country. And you've got so many so many little villages and towns everywhere so when you get the idea of saying like oh we're gonna we're gonna cover this this village in solar panels because there's a policy that says we need to cover the entire county in solar panels well there 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 might be an opportunity there for some unscrupulous local developer to run around to all the villagers and sign up to use their land or use their rooftops and offer them just really awful rates for leasage rates and you know that are that are not in accordance with you know guiding policy or national policies but you know there's it's only so much you can you can police there's only so much you can regulate when there's just so much out there and so yeah there are opportunities for for rural people in China to take advantage uh certainly a lot of the poverty alleviation programs that have dealt with installing community solar and making sure the community solar uh, proceeds go back to the village those have been successful in some cases in other cases maybe they were talked into taking loans that they couldn't afford or couldn't afford to repay. Uh, Maybe the solar generation was never going to be as good as they were led to believe it would. And so they couldn't actually repay those loans. Like there's, there's a lot of goodwill and there's a lot of good intentions. And then also there's many opportunities for just bad actors to take advantage. So I never want to say if it's like, Oh, it's a good policy or if it's a bad policy or, you know, that's, there's always shades of gray.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I've noticed just uh, on a macro scale is that uh, in China, you know, even though they're they're adding a lot of renewables, also the total amount of power produced and consumed is steadily rising. Whereas in the United States, as we see a greater share of renewables, um, that's uh, comorbid with uh, the total amount of power produced and consumed uh, either remaining steady or going down slightly, um, which is interesting. So I feel yeah, like. I mean-
2: yeah. Chinese power use per capita is like less than half of what the United States is. Are you going to tell uh, 600 million emerging middle class Chinese that they're not allowed to get a second light bulb, or get a bigger refrigerator or they can't have a toaster because you know, the world has used up its quota of energy? No, like that they, they deserve to have a high quality electrified lifestyle you know, and as you get even past the middle class it's even more severe sometimes you're talking about the villagers getting their first light bulbs or the people putting their first washing machines in there and then the, the women who have been washing clothes in the river for their entire life now get to go do other things because because the washing machine works like it's really amazing what electrification does for a society and we cannot block people out of that by saying no the world is using too much now
1: yeah yeah Totally agree. You know, I'm curious about how the perception in China, um, where here in the United States, there's this perception that uh, renewables will actually get rid, will will be one form of energy that can uh, get rid of uh, fossil fuels, where um I don't know if that's different in China, if they, they understand how the uh, electricity grid works, where uh, renewables can not actually replace fossil fuels, because you still need a backup source to a baseload base source to back up uh, these things when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Um, is there like a more realistic perception of how renewables work in China?
2: Well, so there's there's policymakers, or, you know, what they set out as policy, And then there's what people think might be good. But honestly, in China, what people think might be good in terms of planning the grid uh, doesn't matter that much. Yeah. because <laughs> I don't want people who don't know anything about energy economics planning my grid. either and I don't Amen want them to that.,
1: yeah, I don't want them awesome. voting
2: on bond issues, which yeah. is how the u s. handles it, right? You get a yeah. bond issue where uh, a community of people who have no, education or background in the matter are invited to decide how the community develops its its hydropower or its wind power
1: yeah. and well no that's I, democracy quote unquote democracy right
2: oh <laughs> well, yeah it's well it's it's democracy for for a thing that perhaps should not be decided by a by the will of the masses yeah uh, and there are some things other things that we agree should not be decided in that way and, and yet we uh, we think that energy planning uh should be at least partially decided in that way in the united states and i'm, I'm glad i don't have to live through some of that because mm-hmm. i see uh some of my colleagues writing fervently passionately about issues that they see emerging in the united states uh different regional grids especially and i can't I can't really connect to it because as far as I can tell in China, what we see appears to be maybe slower than people would like in terms of decarbonization or liberalization, but always logical, Mm. right? To say, okay, we're going to keep coal for now. Uh, Oh, what's that? There was a hydropower shortage this summer and because of extreme weather brought about by like shifting climate patterns, and now it seems like droughts might be more common. Okay, add more coal power. We need more backup in case the hydropower fails. Right. Um. Like, let's let's uh build wind and solar right now, but let's mandate every wind and solar facility starting from well this year or last year they have to install storage. Uh, does it make the project maybe financially untenable in some cases? Sorry. Like, you need to install storage because yeah. you have a variable uh, source. Uh. Does it, does it make your project economics bad? Well, build enough of them at scale and your project economics will get better. Hmm. Like that's been the Chinese approach to a lot of different things like, oh, you, you have pain, well, your job as a state-owned enterprise is to be the lubricant in this whole system. You underwrite all of the losses, all of the risk, all of the issues, because that's your job, because your job is to provide power. And yeah, it's good if you can be profitable and do your best to be profitable, but if you can't be profitable, it's okay. As long as you're still doing your job, which is to provide secure, stable power.
0: Right. Yeah. And it seems like, um, you know, I, I get it too with uh, the smog problems that are, you know, just kind of a meme about people, you know, people's perception of China is that like, oh, you go into the city, you can't breathe. And I think from what I've heard, that's true. Um, so certainly like replacing the coal with like cleaner coal plants. I know they're, they're retiring some of the older models of coal plants and um, bringing new, the new plants that are coming online are a little cleaner, but also, um, you know, bringing online just this giant slate of nuclear plants. Um, and I know that's, isn't that your specialty is, is nuclear, right?
2: Yeah. I, I did start my career in nuclear before I shifted to what is now like a broader, a uh, job description. Yeah.
0: So, uh, so with the nuclear, so, um, in China's upcoming nuclear plans, is it mostly, uh, larger scale reactors or are they bringing on uh, a lot, some more, um, small, you know, SMRs, the small modular reactors?
2: uh the the bulk of the nuclear fr- fleet right now is the larger gigawatt level reactors uh the majority being kind of second generation plus or third generation now reactors uh there are some small smaller reactors planned uh there is one small modular reactor under construction right now and a couple of reactors on the smaller size of things uh, but they're kind of next generation like demonstration reactors a high temperature gas reactor there's a sodium cooled reactor those are smaller they are planned to scale up to kind of 600 megawatt or gigawatt level uh once they get into the kind of the full commercialization uh and they're just in pilots right now
0: got it yeah um it's interesting. I, I I've been you know looking at some of the reports from COP twenty seven, and one interesting thing is that uh, China's pavilion at COP twenty seven it showcased all the other forms of energy, but they didn't have any nuclear on display. Yeah, I
2: heard about that.
0: What do you What do you think about that? What do you think is the reason behind that? If If you could theorize,
2: it's it's a little disappointing. I I, I wonder if uh you know, and it's it's a rare occasion, but if China in this case wasn't actually aware. Of like how it could be potentially controversial and maybe would like stroke some feathers the wrong way. I don't know. China's never been particularly concerned about that. uh the the drive to build nuclear in China is certainly still strong. They're wildly proud of the accomplishments that they've made in localizing uh imported technology and then turning it around and redeveloping it and building out this really impressive, local supply chain so it is a shame that they wouldn't want to highlight it maybe it was a strategic decision to avoid you know upsetting the wrong key dialogue partner that they were planning to have some talks with I don't know it, it, it is a it is an unfortunate uh situation considering they have excellent accomplishments in nuclear and yeah. they're certainly worth bragging about and they're proud of them
0: yeah I saw I mean I saw one fossil fuel uh, investor. Uh, on twitter he he theorized that he thinks that china uh, did that um you know to push solar to help hobble uh, western countries um because you know it's such a it's such an export that you know you know like the united states for example we go into debt to buy solar panels from china uh you know we borrow money to buy solar panels that and then we use them to shut down reliable forms of energy and it contributes to the deindustrialization of the country because these intermittent sources can't, uh, support industry. Um, so I I just, I I wonder about that, but you know, there's, there's a lot of things at play and, uh, you know, something else I wanted to ask you about was just kind of like for the energy security of China, you know, as a communist country, they're under attack from the rest of the world. Um, and you know, if you look at the, the amount of, um, fuel sources that they import, that they have to import, that they have reserves of versus what, um, I'm sorry, what they have to import, what they don't have reserves of versus what they actually are able to mine themselves or extract themselves. They have a lot of it seems like they have a lot of coal in China and they have a lot of lithium, So, which would mean that coal and renewables are probably their two best things for maintaining their energy security. And then they have to import a lot of gas and oil into the country and uranium. Um, is that is that generally accurate or?
2: Yeah, uh, China is a country uh, well endowed with coal. It has a bit of oil and it's really lacking on the gas and its strategy, its energy security strategy has really been shaped around that initially, Uh, having access to the rare earths either in country or through mining deals and partnerships throughout Africa Uh, and then the lithium, the silicon. Uh, The uranium is an interesting situation. So there's only a bit of uranium in China, but China has moved really aggressively to take ownership, like equity stakes in foreign uranium mines. So although they're importing it, it's like Chinese owned mines in Namibia and Kazakhstan and wherever else they, they've they taken equity stakes in these mines. And so I think that's a little bit of an effort to, to buffer against supply shocks. They still do plan to procure a certain amount of their uranium from the international spot markets. But in the last few years, uranium prices had been really low and they stockpiled just A ton of the stuff just so much uranium uh, in Chinese stockpiles right now so they've got like very limited exposure at the moment to the fluctuations and uh, vagaries of the international uh, uranium market, when it comes to uh, gas. They don't really use that much gas for power generation in the country for that reason. I mean, Europe right now is an excellent case study in why you want to try to cut yourself off from gas. In China, gas is used as a feedstock for, you know, like uh, fertilizers and petroleum products and stuff like that. Gas, there are gas peaker plants, especially on the coasts, because that's where you can get the gas. Uh, Gas is so expensive right now. They're basically not being used. Uh, And they always had like a tough value proposition anyway because gas was just more expensive than coal and now it's just really tough to to make money as a gas plant operator in China. And so coal ends up making a lot of sense for most of the provinces in China. Hmm. The coal is up in the Northwest, central Northwest, mostly. So if you're a coastal province and you have to bring the coal all the way down to the coast, to the East coast, to the South, it ends up getting a little bit more expensive than you liked. And that's why you cast your eyes around and you say, well, does importing gas maybe make sense? If you're Guangdong, you say, does importing a little bit of coal from Indonesia make sense? used to be Australia, now Indonesia. Uh, but for the most part, like, hey, we got lots of coal. It's cheap. It's here in the country. We can control the supply channels. We can actually regulate the price if we need to. Like, why not use it? You know, well, well, the air, that's a good reason. <laughs> why not use it? But for a long time, there was no good answer to why not use it. And that's why there's so much coal.
0: So you're from you're from Maine originally, right? Okay. So yep. yeah. So that's that's an interesting case study about relying too much on natural gas. Um, I don't know if, if you've been following, uh, the, the ERC, is it ERCOT and what, what is the name of the ISO in New England?
2: I I think. N-E-I-S-O.
0: N-E-I-S-O. Yeah. yeah, And they, I mean, they're kind of in a really bad spot because they rely on LNG, but they've blocked all the pipelines and they've shut down their nuclear plants. And, uh, basically like a, a one cold snap this winter is going to break new england i mean it's going to be brutal if if i mean we've been very fortunate that the weather has been very warm unseasonably warm uh here in new york and well, not new in england buffalo. well <laughs> buffalo had a, had a snowstorm but yeah i mean uh they're going to be deep shit this winter uh if there's a bad cold snap um do you i mean do you have any uh, observations or memories from growing up there that You know, about their their energy mix or what what you've noticed as you've uh, learned more about how, how energy works.
2: Well, so I'm from I'm from way up north in Maine. We're not actually not part of any ISO. We're on our own, own situation. Okay. I think we have we have more interconnections to the Canadian grid, I think, than uh well, than we do with the rest than, of yeah. the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like about halfway or maybe a, a third of the way up the state of Maine, you you get into the NEISO zone. Um I wonder if you've um you've read uh Shorting the Grid by Meredith oh, yeah. Angwin. Oh, we had her yeah. on the yeah.
1: podcast. Yeah. She's oh, fantastic. Great. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. I mean, if 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 you if you've read that, then I think we're pretty much on the same page with the state of the NEISO. Is from what she's described before with their previous dalliances in this uh this fuel reliability program that was then shut down and the issue with the pipelines that are going to the power plants into the people's homes at the same time. It seems like a real mess, and as a as a A a voter in the state of Maine, like literally the only thing I can try to do to affect it is vote on that central Maine power, what do they call it the central Maine uh, corridor, the corridor that's supposed to bring down the the Quebec hydro, and people get so angry about it all those Canadians and those like those uh, fancy people from Massachusetts, those mass holes, are going to be like cutting. Yeah, that's what we call them. They're yeah. going to be cutting through our wilderness uh, and they're just going to be running their ugly lines through our wilderness where we like to go hunting and fishing and do all these wonderful things and and for the benefit of 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 massachusetts citizens and a rich corporation in quebec uh and it's you know to a certain extent that categorization is is not inaccurate uh maine collects uh some some maybe wheeling fees right they collect some money that goes to you know a, a main utility that nobody likes anyway uh and so it's a hard sell for for the main voter and i think they tried once they shot it down uh they try to maybe they try it again i'm not sure maybe they're gearing up to try it again they're probably going to shoot it down again if they try again uh the 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 NIMBYism in in Maine uh is real and uh i don't think they're going to end up resolving it if if you ask Mainers where i'm from to give up some of their wilderness so that a rich canadian company who we hate and rich assholes who we hate can get some <laughs> benefits it's never going to happen <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, we have like a very parallel story happening here in the Hudson Valley in New York, um, where they, I I don't know if you know about this, but they, the environmentalists successfully shut down Indian Point Nuclear, which was providing a huge chunk of of, uh, energy to New York City. So now to compensate for that, you know, they have to open up gas, gas plants, you know, new, new peaker plants and whatnot. But the the they were able to shut down indian point as environmentalists by saying like that they would go along with the hydro Co- hydro quebec program of um this uh, it's called chippy uh, the what was that stand for again i'm not
0: sure what it stands for but it's an like it, underwater it's a, it's a pipeline
1: yeah. yeah from from quebec that's supposed to go all the way down to new york city to compensate for the loss of Indian Point. But now that the same environmentalists are saying, actually, no, we don't want that anymore. Um, and it's the same situation where it's like, I, I don't even think that the people in in rural New York even care that much about Chippy. Um, but the, it, it is that same kind of sentiment where uh, what they're trying to do to compensate, they say, oh, no, the environmentalists say, we don't want Hydro-Quebec Chippy, the, the power line to come down from the from the Hudson River, we want to just build tons and tons of solar and wind. And what's happening is that the rural people say, well, well, we don't wanna destroy our backyards. You know, our bucolic, you know, in that essay, you had a really great essay about um, comparing rural Maine to uh, rural China. And it, it is this similar idea where the economies are falling apart in these rural areas and all they really have to rely on is what was formerly you know the agricultural industry is now ecotourism right um is the beauty of the countryside so now the one sort of lifeline they have left which is their beautiful bucolic backyard that they they themselves cherish is now risking um having being bulldozed over by solar panels and wind turbines and and things like that so it's i think what's interesting about all of it is is we talk about china and they're just saying well whatever makes sense for for people um and that's such a different approach than here where it's like you, you people start to get into these wars where they favor one sort of energy source and versus another because they really are at odds with each other and it is like a rural versus uh city kind of dynamic
2: yeah and you know in China I've never heard somebody expressing that they think uh, wind turbines are ugly this is such a weird thing to me when co- people complain about oh I don't want to see those ugly wind turbines I can understand if maybe you like you, you don't like the reflection off of solar panels or you think they like the cover I think wind turbines look kind of cool actually like i i if you oppose them on other grounds you worry about their their effect on the grid they don't add inertia they they're intermittent okay fine i think they look all right honestly <laughs> like i have no I problem look with the cool. appearance
1: of wind i think they look cool from a distance but i wouldn't want to live like right next to one and yeah like, these sure. the flickering i you know and
0: would... see the birds like just falling down yeah. i mean it, you know you can like maybe harvest some of the meat but i don't know
2: wow that got dark real
1: fast (laughs) I'm just thinking in a utilitarian sense (laughs) well we joked about that I don't know if you follow uh, Emmett Penny's work he he does a lot of work you you should check him out because he's the one who recommended Meredith to us but he does a lot of work on around investigating the energy energy, uh, sphere in, in the United States and how insane it is and irrational and I think that's the big the big uh difference between us and china is that they're they're doing it more rationally and and everything has it comes from this sense of defensiveness where it's like you like you said earlier you're either environmental or you're in the energy sector and it's like in china they don't seem to see that as a, as much of as a conflict so here it's sort of like you have to be defensive about uh about whether you're for the environment or for for people and energy right it, it, it has, I
2: can tell you this, I, I did my education Then I started my career in China. And I've worked my whole life in the Chinese energy sector, I, I am honestly on the outside looking in when it mm. comes to like the the oddities of the like this zoo, almost that is the American grid and the American power system, I, I learn about it kind of playing catch up. Uh, mm. Because I, I, I did, I've had my whole career here. Um, but also like, a lot of the culture wars I, I have to learn about the culture war as an outsider looking in because again i came up in my whole career here where it really does seem like choices flow into other choices and when mm-hmm. when somebody screams at me about like well what do you know about the intermittent renewables you know they the sun doesn't always shine i'm like yeah china knows the sun doesn't always shine that's why they also are building coal plants to mm-hmm provide ramping functions and like maybe you don't like coal plants but like they know the sun doesn't shine and then the next time i post something about nuclear and they go well what are they gonna do about the waste and i go (laughs) china knows about waste like every time these these culture warriors come at me and i i find the argument so bizarre because i'm like well i'm china's just kind of approaching it with what i seems to be a logical thing to me. Like, yeah, they like wind, they like solar. They're going to build coal until they can't anymore. They're going to build nuclear because nuclear can fill in some of the roles that coal is going to have to give up once, once coal is exiting the system and they try to build as little gas as possible because it's really expensive. And, and people in the US go, yeah, yeah, those are all the problems that we, 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 we are worried about. Oh, that sounds not bad
0: actually. Well, yeah. and, And now kind of zooming out from China, you know, China's belt and road initiative, um, there It's a competing program with kind of the, the G seven or the World Bank um, you know where uh, loans or loans and investments are offered to developing countries um, that do have to be paid back. Um, China seems to be offering better terms. but also um there seems to be a competing agenda where the g seven countries, for example, in South Africa, the g seven countries are incentivizing them to shut down their base load, replace it with renewables. Uh, China seems to be emphasizing more exporting uh, coal plants, helping developing countries build coal plants and some nuclear. I think they have two nuclear projects in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, And the United States is spending a lot of money. Um, I think they've approved like half a billion dollars to spend on propaganda um, to uh, disparage the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, I Um, saw that. Yeah, while also... um, we're disparaging the belt and road initiative which is exporting coal and nuclear but at the same time we're we're borrowing we're planning on borrowing trillions of dollars to buy solar panels from china uh to bring them here um and, you know it just seems so silly like this this like why why are we fighting with china so much you know what's the point if you know if, if we could build if we could actually invest money logically together uh for the benefit of all um you know what's the point of the of this this ridiculous <laughs> these ridiculous contradictions? I I don't get it.
2: Not just fighting China, not just saying, do as I say, not as I do, but also doing it in an incredibly patronizing way that assumes that the objects of Chinese or U.S. aid, whatever, are incapable of making decisions for themselves and incapable of balancing their own priorities about what type of energy they need that fits their development model best. And to go in there and say... Don't you get it? The Chinese are just using you for this there. How could you have been such a patsy? How could you be such a fool? Let me educate you about the right way to receive free stuff. And the the it's it's all from this position of just like, you don't know what's best for you. I know what's best for you. Let me tell you. And regardless of whether it's uh, let me tell you that you need coal or you need renewables or you need hydro or you need low interest loans or high interest loans or whatever, it's all coming from a position of let me tell you what you need yeah. instead of you tell me what you need. Well, there's that,
0: there's that story. There's an African official that said uh, whenever the Chinese visit, we get a new hospital. When the British visit, we get a lecture.
2: yeah yeah no the 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 whole clip that's it's a classic excerpt if twitter eventually goes down that's one of the ones that needs to go in the twitter museum
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was i was reading so your your article about the comparing the rural situations i there was a there was a little quote in here that i really liked where you were talking to a guy who's sort of a local politician in maine and you were Speaking on the merits of how the Chinese kind of like operate with their energy and um this to go back to that rural versus countryside debate, um you said you tell him how uh the rural infrastructure development in China's countryside mostly is mostly top down, driven by national investment money. I explain how China's core philosophical foundation is for this or for this is basically our country has grown on the back of labor. Uh, from rural areas. now it's time for the nation to repay the countryside. And I think that was such a a really great quote um from this this piece. Um, and it seems like there, China's going a step further, you know, with with like the nations of Africa and other developing nations and saying, not only did we, not only did our own countryside um help, we built up our urban cores on their backs, but the entire the entire world. And so this starts to take sort of a different um, I don't know, it's like a different philosophical point of view, like you said, um, that that nations like China are taking uh, even Russia, too, to help build up the rest of the, uh, the world, to get them to a certain level where they can they can reach, you know, these levels of prosperity that were built up on their backs. Um, and I think that's the big difference between what what China is doing and what the Western world is kind of saying, like, no, 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 we'll tell you what you can do, right?
2: Yeah, well, so yeah. So there's a couple different ways I'll I'll respond to that. Like, first, uh, China is pragmatic, right? Though the, they are going in, and they're going to get the minerals that they need, and they're going to get the concessions, and they're going to get the diplomatic support that they want at the UN. It's you know, like that. It's it's no uh it's not wrong to want those things also and to also benefit from having those things uh but i think like in contrast to uh unfortunately the way uh the communist party of china is framed in popular western narratives there are a lot of real believers in within the Chinese Party, it's it's not like uh, yeah sure there are some cynical power grabbing guys, especially probably at more local levels, but like at the higher levels, there are a lot of real believers in the message of socialism with Chinese characteristics and what that means for a development model, and 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 when they say we're not interested in exporting our political model, like that, this is for China, you know, it's, we're not trying to push this. I believe him. I do believe him. That being said, uh, yeah, certainly a, a rising tide does, does raise all the boats, right? So when you're pouring money into into developing nations third world nations uh yeah a lot of it i think we can probably agree that a lot of it ends up in the hands of in the pockets of local elites because Mm -hmm. of the way that the the system works uh and because of how dysfunctional i think a lot of the places china is trying to operate in are uh but again the rising tide that that raises all boats that they are still employing every time i i see uh, a point and a counterpoint. It's something like, well, they're only hiring local Chinese companies. Well, no, actually, recent scholarship says that something like seventy-five percent of upper management and ninety-eight percent of lower level workers are all local. In this case, I think it was Kenyan. Uh, are in fact Kenyan workers? They're saying that, like, regardless of the outcome of who gets the money, there are now hospitals and ports and roads and and processing facilities and and hard infrastructure and assets that are going to be used when you when you get into a good crop of of local political leaders visionary local political leaders they're going to have the assets and the infrastructure to try to use it uh
1: yeah you're creating and, the potential for for yeah. good things to happen right
2: so, so so I don't know if if China necessarily goes in with the idea of saying, like, we're going to repay the workers of the world. I Maybe <laughs> there's a little bit of it in there. They want to they want the minerals <laughs> and right. they want the, the oil and they want the gas and they want that other stuff. It's just that in exchange for it, they're offering something far more uh, practical and usable and and. It's a mutual State, benefit. Win win yeah.
1: cooperation, I think is what they call that's, it, right? That's the
2: phrase, yeah. <laughs> right. They say, like, that they say the contrast is hey, look, Europe is going to come and the United States are going to come and they want the same stuff we do, but what they have to offer in exchange for it is not going to be nearly as useful and helpful for you over the short and long term. Yeah. And, and I think they're winning that that debate right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see too that uh, even the, the biggest champions of, the Green New Deal and the energy transition, like uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Ed Markey, uh, they all signed a letter uh, to Biden urging him to sanction countries that cooperate with China to build, uh, you know, dirty energy sources. Um, I mean, that's just insane to me. And these are people that are held up, you know, on, on the left in the United States as as the energy champions, the people that are, you know, the most serious about the uh, the looming threat of climate change and. Mm-hmm you know it it's just uh it's it's green imperialism
2: yeah it's like now that now that We've climbed aboard. We've emitted our carbon for several generations, several lifetimes. Now let's pull up the ladder behind us on the boat yeah. and demand that everybody else stuck and down in the water uh, use intermittent expensive energy. And it could be cheaper. Sure, China has figured out how to make it cheap in mass scale. But these like Kenya is not China and Angola is not China. And they're not going to be building solar and wind farms at the same price that China can in China. Uh, And unless you are offering something better, all you are demanding they do is take, at this moment in their development, an inferior product, an inferior energy source. Uh, It has a great place. I love wind and I love solar, and they have a place in our grid, but what those countries need right now is is not wind and solar, I, I think. It could be part of the solution. It could be in concert with a big old hydropower facility and, and, a, and a nuclear power plant, probably. And then pour all the wind and solar that you want to into there. But before that, to start from, I don't know, we're looking at like the Democratic Republic of the Congo is something like, Seventeen percent electrified, right? We've got eighty million people with no electricity uh, in in, uh, in 2022. Like you're gonna go in there and say, "All right, from now on, everybody, we're gonna start our electrification initiative with distributed solar." Uh, that, that might help with some of the remote villages that weren't going to get connected into the grid anyway, unless they had the local distributed solar. And if you want to take that approach for them, go for it for the rest of them. What they need is a centralized power station and a distribution grid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Modernization. And I think also actions kind of speak louder than words, right? As far as the United States goes, if they really care about clean energy, They'd be building out nu- their nuclear fleet not sh- not shutting it down I'm, i mean that's really i think the if you just look at it logically if that's the priority of the united states which is already emitting supposedly all this carbon and you know we're contributing to dirtying the planet well why aren't we why aren't we cleaning our own house first why are we trying to you know
2: i have some sympathy yeah. for the u.s legislator who has a personal crush on nuclear and says (laughs) i want to build more nuclear power plants in my in my state in my community because you have a severe order of operations problem here when they say nuclear is too expensive or it takes too long to build like those are all real things that exist because of bad policies yeah or because of like excessive policies or overly conservative policies all those things right if you are forced to confront the idea of building a nuclear power plant in the united states in 2022 just as the landscape sits right now i don't think it looks super great no uh if if you want to say like well the problem a is because of that and problem b yeah. is because of yeah like those are all valid things i understand it's not your fault but like if we just looked at the landscape it kind of doesn't look great it well, kind of feels what's like what's happened it is
0: that what's happened is that the, the nuclear industry has been battered down by all these uh, you know decades of of just this like horrible misinformation and but the problem is that they I feel like they've accepted the premise of all that stuff which is why the only nuclear investment that I see the only movement I see towards nuclear in the United States is towards SMRs SMRs which you know in even putting SMRs in places where like a full a full-fledged power plant was shut down prematurely and I feel like it just accepts that premise that like oh nuclear is too big um, you know, we need a small, as beautiful solution that uh, is modular. You know, that it isn't isn't going to create too much energy. We will not want energy to get too cheap. Um, right. You know, so I just Imagine feel like how awful. It. And it's been, you know, like the the leading SMR company in the United States is owned by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. You know, uh, Terra Power. Um, and I don't necessarily think that they're they're incentivized to want. Economic, you know, economic growth. Let's say, like, I, I, think that they're. If you look at like the meta of like the the investments that they have, that they're more invested in degrowth of, you know, uh, maintaining kind of a, a larger slice of a of a shrinking pie rather than, you know, maybe a stable part of a growing pie. Um, at least that's you know my impression. Something I see you talk about a lot is uh, levelized cost of energy. And I yep. feel like that's that's something that uh, we don't we don't have enough understanding
1: of here in the United States. I don't even States. know what that is. What levelized cost of energy? I don't know what that is. What is that?
0: <laughs> it's a very
2: nebulous term. It's it's an effort to compare apples to apples when one thing is an apple and the other thing is a soccer ball. But <laughs> we're going to try to make them both apples anyway. So it's the idea of saying like if we could turn all the generation. That this like we have one thing is this is all the generation that this unit this this wind farm or this is ever going to create over its lifetime, and then like here's every cost that was ever incurred to generate that power, or not every uh, certain costs are excluded, which is another criticism of LCOE, uh, and we put one on the on the numerator and the other on the denominator, and then we say on a kilowatt hour basis or a megawatt hour basis how much does this energy cost per per unit of generation and it's been attacked from so many different angles and it's been torn down and rebuilt from so many different angles and it persists because at the end of the day it's just like a an easy way to throw up a chart and say hey look here's how much nuclear costs per unit and wind and solar per unit like i i always like it's it's useful to use uh when you're trying to communicate concepts and on a relative basis if you say like it used to cost this much and now it costs this much you can infer directionality definitely Uh, But when you start saying like, is this one more expensive than that one? Are you considering that external cost? Have the costs of balancing the solar because sometimes it's not shining and then it has to pay for additional costs of a coal plant to come online to follow the solar? Has that been built into the Mm. LCOE? That's when the criticisms of the LCOE model start to pile up and then it kind of is exposed as potentially not the best way of comparing them. And you'll see all these like thinky think pieces online about it's time to abandon LCOE or no, LCOE is still relevant. Uh, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, at at its core, it's it's an effort to say, look, this this unit, based on how much it costs to build over its lifetime, will generate electricity at a cost of this much per, per unit of electricity. So and, and China's seen wind and solar costs, and we could say on an LCOE basis, decline drastically, like amazingly so over the last 10 years uh, through project economics and economies of scale and just getting better at building them. Uh, and China has seen nuclear costs come down and China has pretty much stabilized its coal costs. There's not a lot of room to bring those down anymore on a per yeah. unit basis. Uh, so yeah, that's how we would talk about um, about using LCOE in a sentence, right? If we use our, yeah. our uh, vo- vocab words, right? We could say that... Um, on a on a cost basis, China maybe runs slightly ahead of the world in solar. And if somebody asks you to justify, what do you mean? You could say, "Oh, on an LCOE basis."
0: Like, yeah, I mean, something that frustrates me about nuclear advocates in the in the West is that uh, when they criticize solar and renewables, um, there's a lot of anti-China stuff baked in. Like they're they're convinced that there's a genocide happening in China to, <laughs> to, that makes solar panels cheap. Um, I don't think, you know, I think that's abhorrent to suggest that that's happening. It doesn't seem to be actually happening. The, the population of the Uyghurs is increasing. And, um, you know, so I I really, I you know, and that's where I, I do have sympathy for what you say about uh, being kind of an equal opportunist energy advocate that, um, you know, we can have all those kinds and we can in a rational country, in a rational system, um, but I, I I fear that in the West, you know, that bridge has been burnt <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. Um, you know, because uh, in, in so many contexts, uh, talking positively about renewables means that you you know it, it, it people read into it that you're saying, oh, I want a hundred percent renewable grid, and humans are a blight on the earth, and um, that's simply not not what we need to be doing. We need to be increasing if we want what we want. Like you know, China has. Um, Energy, uh, at least from from what I've read, that on average electricity for uh, regular people in China is half of what it is in the United States. Um, Our our energy prices here, and you know, in New York State, um, they they're so pegged to the price of natural gas. And at the same time, our country is refusing to increase its production of natural gas, um, which means that you know, it's the people on the bottom that are experiencing the most uncertainty and the, the biggest price spikes. Um, I, you know, I, I really, I really wish we could, we could learn some lessons from China and, you know, I'm glad that we're trying to get, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to build that, (laughs) build that bridge by talking to you today. Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, uh, China cross subsidizes. So it means that no matter what the price of coal is doing or the price of gas or whatever, at least for now, uh, residential and agricultural power prices don't change, they're fixed, and they're guaranteed by the grid. which means that in order to, like if the grid has to pay more to procure that power, to provide it at a fixed rate to residential, they'll collect their money on the back end from their other types of customers. That's commercial and industrial users. So commercial and industrial users will see fluctuations in their power bill related to the grid's costs to serve residential power users at a predictable and stable rate of power, which of course is necessary when you have a flood or a drought or a blizzard or something. And you never get in a situation where people can't afford to run the heat or can't afford to run the cooling uh, residential sector and agriculture because you need to Provide food for the uh, for the nation, and if your cost for irrigation went up, you know, and suddenly your crop fails. Like that can never happen. That can never be allowed to happen. So, at least for the time being, residential and agriculture always have guaranteed uh, security of supply, and industrial and commercial power users cross subsidize them.
1: Wow that is it's so that's so brilliant i hope people listen to this and say we could have a rational system here you know i mean i know you're not really a a politics kind of guy but could you ever see in the united states um you know they have socialism with chinese characteristics could you ever see an uh uh socialism with american characteristics i mean could 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 we ever achieve this in the united states (laughs) he's making a face (laughs) yeah I wish
2: I so first off i I'm a bit removed from the u s. political culture. yeah, uh, I've been away for a decade now, and I That's why you look so it.
1: happy and, yeah. and <laughs> relaxed I'm,
2: yeah, I'm on the outside looking in with this morbid fascination like people watch <laughs> horror movies or car accidents uh, yeah and and I don't know. I think maybe individual states could do it. Hmm. And the way our, way our grid works right now, uh, it is like you have individual countries, right? Each yeah, ISO hmm. is maybe its own its own small country. Uh, so yeah, maybe individual individual states or, or grid regions could do something more like that. Uh, it it requires a concerted multi year political will. That I'm not sure. And I did mention that in my article, too, that like to see these kinds of changes, whether it's rural economic development or transformation of our grid or whatever it is, the sustained political will to be able to implement something like that transcends a four year election cycle. Right. It takes right. so many years to build a power plant or to plan out an ultra high voltage grid or to do all that work. You've You've got to have... The constituents and the politicians and the political leadership somehow all on the page for a really long time, all on that same page to be able to push projects like this forward. And there was a period in American history where we managed to build like the interstate highway system or we managed to like consecrate a bunch of national parks and a bunch of things where like it seems like all the political will aligned long enough to accomplish some pretty impressive things and build some pretty impressive infrastructure it feels like those days might be behind us <laughs> uh it, it seems really tough i i don't know i'm no expert on the american political system far yeah. from one but it seems like it's really tough
0: and mm. what do you think people can expect uh, going forward with China with their energy mix? And uh, you know, where where do you think, where do you see things are going? Because, uh, for example, the coal plants, you know, they, they're planning on having peak coal in 2026, I think, um, 2025. Uh, and, you know, with China, there's always like, uh, you know, they say one thing, but um Sometimes other things are still happening. Like they pledged to stop building coal plants in other countries, but you know, that that has continued and there's more planned. Um, so what do you think uh, you know, people that are interested in China's energy grid and their plans, um what's what's your prediction about where things are going?
2: Well, I think the twenty twenty five coal consumption peak that feels uh we'll see. We'll see what happens with that one. There's It's possible to build a lot of new coal plants and then use them on average less. So you build a bunch of new capacity and then you end up burning less coal overall. And that can be possible because you're also building a bunch of wind and solar. Uh, The 2030 carbon neutrality, uh, sorry, 2030 uh, carbon peak. It's, I want to believe they'll get there. They're putting an awful lot of political will and economic Uh, force behind getting there Uh, whether it actually happens in 2030 or 2031 or 2029 or 20 34 like they're pushing really hard for it i have no doubt that they'll proclaim that they actually got there in 2030 uh whenever it actually happens maybe it's that time maybe it's a little bit later you know what it's none of my business as long as you're working really hard to get there i'm I'm sure it's fine The that's like what we can see for the next five to ten years a lot of things are moving in the right direction in my opinion when it comes to the power sector uh In terms of decarbonization and in terms of liberalization that will, uh, if implemented correctly, aid the decarbonization. It will prioritize during certain times of day, certain times of power. It will ensure that your firm backup generators get rewarded for being firm backup. It will reward your wind and solar for being available when people want to consume wind and solar. Uh, That that is all moving in a direction that gives me confidence that says 2025, 2030, feel good. Once we get after that, I don't know, we get into funny numbers, 2030 to 2060. That's like three decades of time that happened a decade from now. Uh I mean here's here's a phrase that I've I've told other people before and I've used before. They're, they're clearly shooting for the moon, right? And whether or not they actually are going to get there. Uh, is, is obviously important, but just setting that goal and pouring all that political effort and all those resources and all that energy into trying to get there is, is already awesome. Uh, so that's, that's what I see is like directionality, clear directionality and pursuit of this goal and whether the dates are hit exactly when they're supposed to be hit. I don't know. I'm not modeling it out that closely. Some people are, I'm not, uh, but I'm I'm optimistic. I feel I feel optimistic that it's developing in a direction that I don't have to feel crazy about. I don't have to feel like everything is illogical and it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's things that I disagree with or I wish they weren't happening that way, but I still understand the logic for why they're happening, and that's that that's a good feeling. That's it. it
1: it's a sense of purpose, and I feel like I'm supporting something
2: that's logical.
1: You see a future happening, whereas in, I feel like in the West where there's a lot of pessimism, there's a lot of depression in U.S. culture because we don't see a future happening, right? Even the people who understand how the grid works, they, like you said, there's so much red tape, right? that uh, it's hard to even imagine the beginning of a logical energy system uh, happening here. But, you know, what gives me hope in being as somebody being in the West uh, is talking to people who understand China um, and, and porting that message back to the American people and saying, we don't have to be that everyone, you know, thinks like China is this authoritarian communist country or whatever. But you know what, they're actually not so different from us in the US and the people, the Americans want the same thing as the Chinese they want. A future right they want something to look forward to maybe we won't hit all these like arbitrary targets and goals but we can still work towards the future and that's that's a good thing we can we can actually run our our societies logically that's still an option and and i think a lot of people are very tired of this culture war stuff and to hear that like there are countries out there that are leading the, the rest of the world like you know a, a, a giant global leader like china can actually, with a with a population that's much larger than ours, can actually run society in a much more logical way. Uh, it it should inspire us, I think, here in the West.
2: Yeah, well, that that there's at least this one section, and I I can't comment on the other sections of the economy, but that there's this, you know, collective agreement that energy planning and the development of the energy sector is something that is left to a bunch of really smart nerds with PhDs <laughs> in energy economics who work at a state-run think tank and right. then they can plan out the sector because they are qualified to do that and that's their only job and that's their only function and you know what we probably should just let them work
1: we that's should that's be- how I see should, it <laughs> we should believe science right that's our big motto here is believe science but it doesn't seem like we do actually trust science or the people in charge and you almost don't bl- blame people for that lack of trust because i think that their trust has been lost um that we've had a lot of our own problems and corruption and maybe we need to stop taking that attitude of like dictating to the rest of the world like we were saying with with uh africa is like no this is how you should do things maybe we should focus on our own country and and rebuilding um rebuilding trust between the people who have expertise, the people who are running things, and how we want to we do how we want to do things here. Clean our own house yeah. first, right? You
2: know, and and that reminds me. It's a little bit of a tangent, but we'll see if I can follow with me. I was thinking in the last couple of days about how much we as a, a society owe huge advancements to like individuals who were super passionate and dedicated about a single thing, and they spent their whole life just like nerding out into it like crazy. And they spent 40 years focused on this one little aspect of this one mechanical engineering thing, or this one chemical engineering thing. And then they improve performance of that thing by 30%. And now we can put more microchips on a processor, or now we can do this or that. And it's major advancements that are all owed to like this one person In China they have those people too right we'll talk about the guy who did like hybridization of rice a national hero because he improved the output of rice by mm. you know like 300% over 25 years of crossbreeding rice to try to get the perfect rice crop and mm. now China doesn't have rice food insecurity I I was I was reading about a guy the other day he spent like four decades of his life trying to eke out an extra 10% of performance and how efficiently a coal plant uses coal. Hmm. Right? He spent his whole career doing this. I'm I'm, I'm about to publish a thing about it because I translated a piece he just wrote. Right. And that's his whole thing. Like, how much does China owe to that guy hmm. when he figures out how to get his extra 10, 15, 18 performance out of coal that they burn in their massive fleet of coal plants? And that's the kind of people that I really hope are running things. That I really hope they have a direct line to the leadership, a direct line to the think tanks that are drafting up the reports and say, "Hey, it's okay if we build more coal plants or more nuclear plants or we deploy more solar because the guy who's yes. been in in the lab for forty years figuring it out, he figured it out." Yeah. Like I, I like feel that like that there's that a lot.
0: Get... That guy would get demonized here. They'd say like, "Oh, you're just a greedy capitalist that wants to increase the profits of the coal companies." It's like, no, burning that coal is going to like keep so many people alive and raise so many people's standard of living. Yeah. And
2: and and at least I mean and I, I I'm again I'm removed from the U S and I don't know how much it's working like that in the U S but I I feel confident that in China in the energy sector the people that are on the cutting edge of getting that extra three percent out of the coal or getting that extra ten uh, percent of performance out of the reactor pressure vessel in the nuclear power plant or getting that extra layer of silicon in the in the solar panel waivers, they all have a direct line to the decision makers and so as soon as that breakthrough happens. Policy is able to adjust hmm. to account for the fact that there's a new reality, and we got better stuff now, and let's just start using it. Uh, and that—that's also, I feel, I feel really good about that.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a very positive, a positive future to to. Uh, it's a it's a positive paradigm to base your. Um, Your society on and i think there's so much inspiration that we can take i I, you know that goes back to that sort of like i think that is a good ethos right for for americans because americans i think inherently do want to contribute they love that uh sort of individual you know pursuit right uh this idea that you can you as an individual can can contribute to the world at large and um you know, if if we give people, uh, the opportunity to say, you know what, if you, if you do become extra special and create this thing that helps everyone, like why, why wouldn't we want to lift that up? And, um, no, it's not all about like everyone being sort of equal and, uh, you know, equally poor and no one's special. It's like, no, we should, we should actually like lift that up. Somebody who can, who can, um, push humanity to the next level. And I think what I try to be, um, you know, I'm more of a politically engaged person, but at this point in the game, I like to say that my politics are really about whether you're pro-humanity or anti-humanity. And I see um, our part of the world being very anti-humanity. And I see China as a beacon of, of pro-humanity. And I think that's the basis of their, um, their environmentalism is that they're pro-humanity and that that way they don't have to be energy versus environment um if you're if you're pro-humanity you say well how can we how can we make both those things work together in harmony um and i think that's that's what it's all about
2: yeah you know i'm i'm from a different angle i end up on kind of the same page as you right i I came up through the US, I thought I was maybe one type of political spectrum and then I thought I was a different type of political spectrum and I ended up in China feeling like I, I didn't really have a strong political bearing on anything really. Uh, and I ended up like, I talk about China a lot and I'm generally pretty positive about China. And I like sharing stories about China because I see at least the stuff that's around me all seems logical and makes sense. Hmm. And when you talk a lot of good stuff about China, you end up uh, on, in online spaces, you end up with a lot of leftists around mm-hmm. you because they also like to talk good things about China and they want to hear good things about China. And I don't like, I'm obviously quite sympathetic to that, to that specific worldview. When I've picked up a lot of, you know, you can hear from the way I talk about, uh, like you know China and Africa versus Europe and Africa and things like that. You can probably guess where some of my political leanings fall. But at the end of the day, I'm it's very pragmatic. I I just happen to think that what what, what China is doing and in my sector that I care about so much is, is working and I'm happy about the direction of things are going. I, I don't have strong opinions by extension about North Korea or Syria or Venezuela or mm-hmm. any of the other favorite uh, flags that you'll find in the profiles of, of, <laughs> of people on Twitter. I, I just happen to think that the sector that I work in, in the country that I work in is functioning in a way that I am uh pleased with. Yeah. And so I'm going to talk about that. And and not just that but when I go out to the rural countryside and I see the programs that are going on and I see the efforts that to 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 improve the lives of people like I think those look good too, and so those are the stories that I end up telling. I end up talking about China not from a really political perspective, but just kind of like a, this is what I'm seeing, and I think it looks all right to me. Yeah, from the perspective. I,
1: I think that's great. I think it's like a post political position to be, and I think that's where we should be. We should be moving right. Is like get get away from this politic bullshit. It because it, it's an extension of the cult uh, of the culture war. And it put, it locks us in a position of feeling like we don't have our interests. We could never have our interests aligned, when when in reality the the bulk of humanity actually when we we do have our interests aligned, and if we work together, we could sort out these uh, problems.
2: It's just like when I was talking to that, that local politician in my piece and I said like, this is the way, and he goes, oh, that sounds great, you know, but you know what they call that around here they call that socialism. <laughs> and like, yeah, I'm ashamed. I'm sorry that it has to have a label for you. That also means something so negative and immediately yeah. makes it a non-starter because yeah. that's what it sounded like. He said, he's like, I, I, I think it sounds great, but you know what? It's a non-starter mm-hmm. because it's got this label and it falls on the wrong side of our cultural war.
1: Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, socialism means something totally different here than it does. Pro- I'm guessing in China. I mean, I'm not. I've never been to China. Maybe someday I'll go. I'd like to. It'd be cool. Come on over. <laughs> You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm Fox. I'm Alex. And today we've been talking to David Fishman. David, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, where can people find your work? Um, what do you want to plug today?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can find me at Pretentious What, all one word, Pretentious What. Uh, I'm also on my Substack where I talk about Chinese rural development at Crossing the River. That's uh, Substack.com. Uh, slash crossing the river Uh, and thanks guys it's been uh, it's been awesome it's been a lot of fun thank you for having me
1: hey listener if you've enjoyed the space commune podcast consider becoming a patreon at patreon.com slash space commune We have some great perks for patrons at the $5 level. You can join our Discord. At the $15 level, we have cool merch rewards, t-shirts, hoodies, posters, things like that. Space Commune is not just a podcast. We also produce documentaries, essays, and live streams. So check that out. YouTube, spacecommune.com for all of our various content channels. And thanks for listening.